Playoff time is when things start getting serious on the court. Players are more driven than ever to win these big games and keep advancing. Goodyear knows all about being more driven, too. Working hard to help you advance on and off the road. Let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best. It's the Hoop Collective. Wednesday edition. I'm Kevin Arnovitz in Los Angeles. Tom Haberstroh is in Charlotte. And he's here. How are you, Tom? I'm good, man. I thought we were going to do the pack your knives intro on that. The pack your knives. Uh, we, we can do a little food on this on this, on this this broadcast at some point. Uh, I, I do want to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers first. Because how does a thoughtful person make sense of this team? Are oh. they immune from our pro- kind of our predictive capacities insofar as you can look at the numbers they're 29th in defense uh, every indicator empirically would suggest this is not a conference winning team and i feel like we have this conversation most seasons i mean i got into problems i picked atlanta in 2015 to win in seven in the conference finals because well how could a 19th ranked defense possibly contend with an offense this discipline yada 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 and obviously you know the end of that story atlanta gets swept uh they seem to they would they would as you are a, an analytics you are a numbers oriented data oriented truth oriented guy i imagine that dealing with the cleveland cavaliers is like just a total riddle it is a total riddle and you know last year they were like t- ranked 29th i believe in the after the all-star break on defense and it was it was a disaster but overall last year by simple rating system on basketball reference for example one of the you know uh, measuring sticks, uh, advanced measuring sticks out there. It had them second in the East. And if you go across the, the different markers of how good is this team, at the end of last season, the Cleveland Cavaliers were really good. They were an absolute uh, title contender. Now, this year, if you look at the simple rating system of the Cleveland Cavaliers, they are eighth in the East, Kevin. In the East, they're the eighth best team in the East. If you're just looking at how well they perform, uh, their point differential after accounting for you know schedule, all those sort of effects, they are basically a middle of the pack team. So, yes, that is sounding all sorts of alarms in my in my analytical mind, which is like, okay, if we take LeBron aside and just look at the Cleveland Cavaliers, all their metrics, you look at their dashboard, this is not a good team. They are literally getting outscored on the entire season. We're 46 games into the season, and opponents are doing better than they are when they play against them. So then you go with, uh, oh, yeah, LeBron. Right, so I guess what I'm asking you is, all right, this is a team that lost 6 of 8 in January last year, including, like, bad losses to, like, you know, New Orleans and Utah. I mean, they had a really bad streak, and I do remember this conversation being – audible and and can they flip on the switch and you can't pick up you know flip on the switch when you routinely give up 120 points so forth uh, even in wins against teams like sacramento and and in other words this conversation is very familiar and it is all we always throw out data when looking at cleveland because as you say lebron that but that that sort of defies our understanding of the world like there like things should that we just basically say hey all this time that intelligent people use spending to handicap 
stuff when it comes to sports. And we knew the Orlando Mar- Magic would fall down to earth because they were shooting at an unsustainable rate, yada, yada, yada. It literally does not apply to this one team because there is some sort of psychic factor outside of straight numbers or predictive measures that say, screw it. All like when, so when the old chestnut, oh, just throw the numbers out the window and we all roll our eyes at that. No, actually, you don't roll your eyes at the Cleveland Cavaliers because of this, this one team and really essentially this one player who just has the ability to say to every intelligent measure, screw you. It doesn't matter. And I just think that in and of itself is strange and weird. And, but how, so you're saying this year, it just, but, we really it's different this year it's different but those predictive this, those they're 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 not stronger than the predictive measures this year right they're actually worse they're about a 500 team projected going forward uh they're about gonna like the espn basketball power index model has them at 46 wins 46 wins to finish the season they're seven games above 500 which means they're about to play 500 the rest of the year and given what they did last year heading into the playoffs where they they were not playing well and they're all the sirens were being fired off at that point um, yeah, how do we how do we feel about this team going forward? I don't see the the savior here. In fact, Isaiah Thomas, when people said, "Oh, they're going to get their MVP candidate back," um, I think it's kind of been the opposite, which is I think all the the problems that were kind of under the surface have bubbled up above the surface, and now they're having multiple players only meetings and they're yelling at each other and the the stories are leaking and Kevin Love isn't getting there's this thing on Reddit today that Kevin Love wasn't being helped up off the floor after getting hit up in the face which was oh, yeah. oh my god they they don't love Kevin Love they actually don't want him to get up from his feet they want him to just lay there there's a lot of this going on but I I do think that this is different like if my car if I was taking it in you know every year for a checkup and I'm like I hear the squeaking Every time I break, is that a problem? They're like, no, nah, it's not a problem. You're good. But then I come in and my tire's blown out. And I'm like, I hear this scree- squeaking. And last time I brought it in, you guys said it was fine. And the year, bef- and the year before that, you said it was fine. They're going to look at you and say, yeah, but your tire's blown out. That's a separate problem. And the, other, the problem that we're seeing with the Cavs is their defense is not just average. 46 games into the season last year, they were an average defense. 46 games into this season – they are 0.1 net rating away from having the worst defense in the NBA. They're minus four points off of the league average on a per 100 possession basis. They are a class below even average. So this is a different thing. The, the, the tire is blown out, Kevin. Isaiah Thomas is not helping them on that end of the floor. In fact, I think he's just adding fuel to the fire because right now, the Cleveland Cavaliers, with him on the floor, are minus 18 every 100 possessions. It's the worst in the NBA. When you look at the players who average 20 minutes a game, Isaiah Thomas on the floor, they're scoring 101 points per 100 possessions and giving up 119. That 119 figure is the worst. And the second worst is Derrick Rose. So what do you make of that? There is no Kyrie coming back. There is no Kyrie. So there is really- LeBron, but the two guys who are filling in for Kyrie – are two of the the worst defenders in the NBA, and they haven't been able to make nearly the impact offensively as Kyrie. So really what we're talking about is we're not even really grading the same team. So all of those uh, unique situations in previous years where we throw the the stats out the window for this particular team, that doesn't apply because it's just essentially not the same team. 
is we're not the, this is not the Cavs as we know them through this Warrior Cav era. This is a different Cav team that is fundamentally and unalterably changed by the presence of Isaiah Thomas and Derrick Rose in a spot where such a commanding player, offensively at least, Kyrie Irving. Think. I mean, but defense is always a tough one, though, Tom, because I feel like it is the one thing that maybe we, we tend to regard it as effort-driven. It's not that you can't glean certain things about a team's defensive capacity, but whereas I feel like teams are more offensively capped and floored, in other words, that a, a team's offense yeah. is – their rating is the, is the sum of its capacity. Right. Like if you have a lot of good shooters, um, you know, who know how to get good shots and good spots, then you're going to have a good offensive team that's efficient. And but that's borne out by the players and their histories where I feel like defense is one of those things. Well, well, if we really wanted to, we wouldn't have to be a 30th ranked. Like, right. Don't you believe that at a certain level yeah. if the if the Cleveland Cavaliers really wanted to the way they really wanted to in the fi- in the playoffs in 2015, where they were they came in lackluster or really any any every playoff postseason that that team's been together they come in average to below average and basically became a top five defense that we we understand that unlike offense where i don't believe a 19th rank offense could just decide by sheer effort that they're going to be a top five offense that there is a human element in defensive ratings that can't that are much more elastic than an offensive rating that if the Cavs wanted to tomorrow, they could be a top five defensive team. You know, maybe not number one, maybe not Boston quality defense, but sustainably better. Well, I mean, if you look at last season, for example, they finished the season with a 108 defensive rating. You know what their postseason defensive rating was? 108. So they didn't raise the bar defensively. They just kind of held water there defensively. 108 is not good, by the way. But offensively, they were at 118. If you remember, it was like Kyle Korver, uh, Kyrie, LeBron just draining threes. They were hitting all sorts of breaking, shattering three-point records. Channing Fry was just unbelievable. And they were they were hitting all their shots. But ultimately, they had the closest four-game sweep in NBA history against the Indiana Pacers. Kyle Lowry didn't play for half the, se- half the series against, uh, against Cleveland. And also, Isaiah Thomas was not himself and actually had to bow out of that series. So, you know, there are... There are contributing factors to the fact that the the Cleveland Cavaliers just waltz back into the finals. You know, like they did sweep the Pacers last year, but it was super close. Like those, if we play that series over, you know, a thousand times, maybe the one time is a sweep. And most of the time it's like a five, six, seven game series. So what we're dealing with here is a team that might have been, I don't want to say lucky in getting so quickly to the NBA finals last year, but the fact that they were able to sweep the the Pacers in a historically close sweep probably made us a little too confident in their abilities. Their defense didn't get better last year. It was really just um, they were the same defensive team, but they hit all their three pointers heading into the finals. So I don't see, I don't see the savior here. I don't see what, what they can do on their own roster. When you're looking at Isaiah Thomas and you're looking at Derrick Rose, Tristan Thompson's being buried on the bench. Kevin Love as the last line of defense is not a rim protector. Um, I think they're going to have to make a deal. I just don't know if any deal is going to make this team into a true title contender. So I'm, I'm going to say, I'll ask, who do you have in a 2-3 Toronto-Cleveland matchup, Toronto hosting Game 7? I have Toronto. Okay. Yeah, I, I've taken the field uh, for a long time. I've taken the field when it comes to the Cavs, uh, who's going to make it to the finals. 
Um, I think it's Boston and Toronto have a better shot at reaching the finals than than Cleveland. Um, I really believe that because they're both playing it on both ends of the floor. Granted, the Celtics offense hasn't been great, but um, Toronto Toronto by by virtue of playing great ball on both ends of the floor, and I think they, that Demar Derozan being a three point threat is going to open up some things for them. I worry about Kyle Lowry and his postseason performance in in years past, but I mean that's small potatoes compared to what the Cavs are dealing with right now. How do you know? Just as a person who generally relies on on kind of rational thought to come to decisions and predictions, how do you know when to throw that stuff out the window? Like, how do you would it would you as just a human being and as a thinker, when you want to basically say, "Hey, I do this for a living. I, I I look at these numbers. The numbers are telling me this. Screw it on this prediction or or or, or, or this conclusion. Really, just this <laughs> feeling. I mean, when do you allow your feeling and kind of innate belief to trump when do i when do i choose my gut over my brain yeah <laughs> uh usually if it's my family is involved uh that's when i go with my gut over my brain um oh, in, but group, it, in group instincts kind of in group <laughs> tribal poll and actually evolutionarily this is this is this is just a fact of life right these are the moments when you know, it's it's the mother lifting the car off the baby, which might be a myth, but um, but right, like you allow it. So when your in group is involved, okay, then you might not always rely on the most rational. Yeah, yeah. Um, like when my baby's crying and I'm like, oh my god, I need to like, you know, put this fire out. Um, I probably just give her cake, right? Even though tomorrow's her birthday, I'm, I just have cake on the mind. But a lot of times, as a parent, you're like, "Hey, th- throw out, throw away the analytics and the nutritional information. I just need to get this overdone quickly." And you just rely on your gut or your heart over your brain. And in the case of the Cavs, I guess LeBron James is like our gut, right? Like, fool me once, picking against LeBron James. Fool me seven times, right? Like, it's it's happened so many times that oh, maybe this is the year that LeBron doesn't make to the finals, and yet. There he is. Um, but at this point, outside of LeBron, I just don't have that. I just don't have that. Well, the evidence says this, you know, 90%, this is going to happen. I'm going to go with that 10%. Like, the only person that does that for me is LeBron. I mean, we covered the Miami Heat for um, in Miami for that 2011 season, and the data was saying that they were better. You know, the data is not saying that they're better here. You know, when they were losing a lot of games, um, starting out 9-8 and eight and losing a lot of clutch performances, like – the numbers said that they were underperforming and that they were better than this. The opposite is happening now, Kevin, where we're believing in LeBron James more so than what the numbers are telling us simply because he's LeBron James. And it's funny, that was seven years ago, and think about that. We're not giving the data the benefit of the doubt in 2011, but now we're just saying, no, LeBron has this extraterrestrial cosmic power about him that's going to raise his team. Six years ago, that was the opposite. We thought that LeBron had didn't have the clutch gene, and he was not Michael Jordan. He was never going to win a title. And here we are in 2018 saying, believe in LeBron at all costs. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that have gone wrong, and we'll move on in a second. I, I really thought, uh, on the premise that LeBron makes everybody better, like, I, I thought Jay Crowder was going to have a really nice career is sort of the forward tandem and that three fours is the Battier uh, type figure, both defensively and okay, he's basically now close to a 40% three point shooter. And that was, that was sort of the recipe and, and generally plays error free ball on both ends and, 
a reason he's been a top 20 guy in, in, in real plus minus. And I, I don't know how many losses or wins that is accounted for or whether if you plug Crowder in, as I expected him, how good they would be, there would still be major issues. But it, it's been a real disappointment for me because I, I thought that was one of the best elements of the trade for Cleveland. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, and Isaiah Thomas, granted, Isaiah Thomas has gotten back to the court sooner than I thought. So you have to give him credit there on on his rehab and getting back before the All-Star break, well before the All-Star break. This, we knew it was going to be ugly, but I'm not so sure it's this ugly. Um, it's It's been hard to watch at times because you know that he wants to perform there. The Cavs are really struggling and he was, you know, he was being marketed as the savior was like oh yeah i know their issues but they're about to get the guy who averaged 28 points per game last year and and brought carry the boston celtics to the to the conference finals last year like that guy that i'm watching right now um the only thing that i see from his game that makes me feel like okay he's getting there is his free throw attempts like he's getting to the free throw line and that's nice but when he, when you're dedicating that kind of usage rate to a guy who's shooting you know uh 39% on the season that's tough i mean he's leading the cavs in usage rate right now and he's shooting 39% and 28% from three point land it's going to take some time for him to get his legs back but it's really tough to watch sometimes you know him defensively i always think like in the baseball world they go on a rehab assignment for 2 weeks and then they play in the majors he's not getting a rehab assignment his rehab assignment is the golden state warriors yeah i, I really expect at some point Especially for these teams that have their their affiliates locally, I think we'll see a time in the next five years where even a player of Isaiah's stature goes to Akron or Canton for you know a couple of games, you know. I yeah. Mean, especially if the team, if Canton's at home, so I I just think that we're going to start. Especially you know teams like Atlanta and Toronto and OKC that, that have their teams in town. It's just. You know, yeah, you might be a max guy, but I I could see a day where West, Russell Westbrook, you know, plays a game, and actually, yeah, it would be great for the for the right. They 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 market the hell out of it. You know, the place would sell out, and it would it actually wouldn't be a bad business decision to have a guy go play twenty two minutes in a in an OKC Blue game for for a rehab assignment, or even for that matter, as you're talking about, a week or two. Yeah, because because the thing is, you're going from zero to sixty. You're going five on five in practice, where guys are not playing hard against you because they're, you know, I talked to uh, Gordon Hayward and Kevin Ware about this thing for a story at Bleacher Report, which is when a guy comes back from injury, you're just subconsciously going to be soft on him. Subconsciously, just you're not even thinking about it. You don't. He's your teammate. You don't want to hurt him in practice because this guy's worked so hard to get back to where he is. So you're five on five. You're letting him just kind of get away with stuff, and then he's got to go play against enemies on five on five on five in the real thing in the real games. That seems like a huge leap, and I feel like going on a rehab assignment, quote unquote, at the G League. I feel like we're five years from now. It's going to be, you know, just just common commonplace to see a guy like Isaiah Thomas play for a week just to get his sea legs back and just to get the feel and the rhythm back. And, and stigmatized. No longer the the development league or the G League, and uh, you know the, the the other thing is that uh, there's this kind of pressure and everything we're talking about. And Isaiah has been heralded as a hero, and when he comes back, you know, if you go down to OKC Blue or you go down to Canton or or wherever, you know, and you go two for thirteen, who cares? I mean, mm-hmm. they'll be pressed. They'll be oh, maybe he's not all well, but I I just think that 
you know, the real life consequences of going two for 13 for being the high usage guy for a week when you probably shouldn't on the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, even if it means getting your rhythm back, I, I that offers another benefit. So I made another Sun Basket dinner last night. This one was salmon, and it, it, it almost rivaled the chicken marbella that I made last week with dates and chicories, which was really good. I'm really into the Sun Basket, Andrew. Keep them coming. I did a Sun Basket uh, live I, Instagram story once. It was glorious. I love Sun Basket, um, and as someone who had a kid and is uh, short on time and all about efficiency, there is no more efficient thing than Sun Basket. Big fan of Sun Basket. The PER is off the charts. It, you know, it took me 25 minutes to make this chicken marbella, and it came with all the stuff, which at first. I was a little like, hey, I want to pick out my own produce. I'm a real cook. Like, I should do that. But then it comes. It's portioned out. It's, in many cases, all you have to do is chop it up. And then I got a good char on the radicchio that came with it. And I sent Andrew, actually, a picture on text. I was like, this is my dinner. He did not respond, but I knew he was thinking about me. Raw radicchio. Fan or not a fan? I'm a fan of Sunbass. It kind of got me to put it in the pan on a really high sear. And yeah. once you get that crisp, it's a different game, Radicchio. I, I'm pro Radicchio when seared in a pan. You are pro Radicchio a la Sunbasket. Sunbasket knows how to do Radicchio. And I was very pleased with my paleo meal. Go to sunbasket.com slash hoop today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash hoop for $35 off. Sunbasket.com slash hoop. Egg yolk is actually the world's perfect food if you're looking for just protein and hormones and everything else. Like you just that's you you want to eat egg yolk. Egg yolk is a good food. Everything they told us in the 70s and 90s is wrong. Yeah, it's the LeBron of food. It hits. It checks every box, right? Oh, it it can a, do everything on the floor. on to um, the All-Star Game and really the conference conversation in general. We now have, as you said in, in our email, deregulated the East versus West. Um, and the conversation about playoffs has been going on forever. I, I think you and I might be in, in similar places on this, which is I absolutely love the idea of reseeding 1 through 16. I think the conference thing is is played out. I don't, I don't think it needs to... The, the structure of the schedule needs to be that way. I think actually it would be a great way to shorten the schedule. But go to Unbalanced, uh, you know, unbalanced schedule and basically one through 30, seed them up 
And the one problem I think you and I both have is kind of subscribers to this, this conversation is travel is all of a sudden you're looking at Miami versus Portland round one. And, and that's just the most extreme case, but basically any Northeastern or far Eastern team and any far Western team becomes an absolute travel nightmare on a two, two, one, one, one series. So I'm very torn. I love the idea of rockets warriors or, or the top two teams, irrespective of conference meeting um, to say nothing of what it might do to the 15, 16 seeds and everything else. But the travel thing does give me pause. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I I feel like we're all itching for a Houston Warriors finals. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people want to see LeBron James go against the Warriors again in the finals. We've seen that. There's We've Celtics that. fans who probably have a, a, a who are occasionally expressive about this as well. Yeah, <laughs> but I think the idea we we've kind of given up on the idea of rivalries because there's a lot more player movement now. And that players grow up on AAU teams and they play against each other. And you don't have this kind of like us first them mentality that that really thrives off in, in rivalries. But I think it's time. I think it's the one through 16. We've seen so many injuries in the league. Um, like one of the reasons why you don't vote Chris Paul to the All-Star game is because he's missed too many games. And we do this with a lot of the players. Steph Curry's missed a whole bunch of games. Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo. You have these guys having injuries. And I'm wondering like... At what point is this, the conversation going to shift and say, yeah, maybe we should just cut like five games from the season and then add a couple weeks to the end of the season so we can have a one through 16 tournament where you get rid of the East versus West. You add a, a week or two into building into the schedule so that when you are crisscrossing in the very extreme event of going from Portland to Miami in the first round, for example – you have some days off in there. You know, we already do that in the regular season where teams are traveling across the country. Well, let's build in some extra rest days. And Adam Silver has been very open to this idea of reseeding one through 16. It's on the table, but he continues to say the right thing, which is, but I'm, I'm weary about this additional travel. But it kind of invites this other thing, which is what if we just snipped like three, five games from the schedule and then we can do the one through 16 with some extra rest in there. Right, because I, I was looking at it. If you have a series that truly does what the finals does now, which is provides two days off between between venues, between cities. So if you started a, a first-round series in Miami-Portland on a Saturday, you basically, game seven is two weeks from that Monday. So you're basically talking about 16-day series now. And don't forget, you need to leave two days in between for the next series to start. So call it 18. That means four series... At minimum, really, that you also have booking conflicts and stuff like seventy-two days. You know, that's two months plus two, really, about two weeks. So add a few more days. I mean, you're really talking about almost th- like three months. So you would be, as long as you'd be comfortable. Again, and if we moved up the playoffs till say April first, now all of a sudden, as long as you're comfortable, kind of playing till almost July first, like you'd probably still need some extra days in there. I think you need like basically three extra weeks of time to do the playoffs right where travel is truly more restful and at a reasonable rate and deal with booking conflicts. Like I'm cool with that, especially if you shorten the schedule. You're still going to have games every day for the playoffs. You won't have these quadruple header days as many, but you'll still have generally one or two. Um, although you will have a lot of dark days, Tom, like in the conference finals. Um, yeah, but the NFL is is a behemoth and they have dark days for five days. You know, um, and I don't think I think appointment viewing really, Kevin, you're a big proponent of this. You've been a crusader for appointment viewing since I've known you. 
like those dark days, I think of it as a positive, not a negative, because for five days, you're just boiling up this excitement to watch this game. And by the way, game. not like we don't have any subplots these days to talk about at the end. Yeah. It's yeah. not like these narratives don't really drive the entire action. I mean, I was talking to a friend whose son is apparently a big NBA fan, but actually never actually watches a game, which I thought <laughs> well, was just kind of like like the perfect kind of post-postmodern commentary on life. Like, I'm a huge fan of this league. Uh, I don't need the games. If they could only get rid of the games and do more of this narrative stuff, boy, we'd really have a league. You know, it's it is a soap opera. Like the WWE aspect of the NBA, I think is way bigger than the NFL or baseball. I think that's why it gravitates towards a younger crowd um, because Papa Tori mentions this all the time: is like the off season might be more fun than the season itself. And I think we're kind of shifting. There's this there's this big like seismic shift among fans where actually the the smartphone and Reddit and Twitter has created more excitement over the conversation around basketball rather than the actual basketball itself. Um, I'm looking at Reddit right now. The Boston Celtics are 0-4 since the ringer wrote about them possibly being the best young team in history. That has nothing to do with like the actual game itself. Like It's just the outcomes of the games that matter. It's like nothing um, about just it, since what? Since actually a, an, an outlet that is you know a hub for active NBA chatter said something like like it's not even it's funny it's like it's even a commentary on, on more on the media than the actual games itself. right right and so the actual game like you don't have to watch the game to enjoy that aspect of it right you don't have to watch um uh Kyrie Irving play basketball to enjoy that as- and and this is the number one story on Reddit right now the other one is no one helps Kevin Love up after getting hit in the face if you watch the game you're not seeing that but you don't have to watch the game to un- to enjoy that aspect of it, and it seems like fans are really enjoying that aspect of it. And the the whole Cavs drama, um, you know, Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. It's not about the draft. It's not about the All Star game that people are excited about. It. It's the draft of the All Star game that people are excited about. So I think in general, um, I think the conversation, the debate, the drama, the soap opera, the WWE aspect of the NBA. Uh, makes me believe that we can cut down on games and introduce more of these dark days into the schedule because the debate and the talk about the NBA is so much more exciting. And your your friend that you just mentioned, like every kid is saying the same thing. Every kid is like, I'm just watching YouTube highlights of these guys. I don't stay up late. I, I just watch the YouTube highlights and then I follow it on Reddit or Twitter. Like that is the fan. That is the NBA fan. Yeah, and I still think scarcity could be made up in the bottom line. It wouldn't happen on year one. It wouldn't happen. You, they, you know, obviously teams would take not actually not all teams, but I think some teams would take a hit. The big broadcast, local broadcast teams like the Lakers and Knicks would take a hit for a shortened schedule. If we went to 70 games or 66 or whatever, uh, I, I like 58, but that's just me. Um, but I, I think over time, scarcity could create a league that is even uh, more capable of dominating kind of the narrative landscape. And you can find ancillary income off that. And I think, you know, the laws of supply and demand over time would totally support and actually, I think, embrace a shorter schedule. Um, The other thing that I think people don't think about with a shorter schedule is now you're talking about stars who are playing. I mean, we take as an article of faith, Tom, that if you and I turn on a game at any moment, the guy we want to see, there's a one in three chance he's not even on the floor during live action. Right. Like like we take 32 minutes is just, oh, yeah, that's the smart way to go. In fact, the smartest stars and the smartest teams are playing their guys 32 minutes. Basically, 
Like, like yet you would never take your favorite TV show and say, you know, you know, what I need a little less of when I watch Veep. You know, Julia Louis Dreyfus. Actually, like, 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 can we cut her from more scenes? Because, like, like that in and of itself is a strange thing to me that we have a league where the game's best practice is to keep the talent that people tune on in to see on the bench more for minutes and minutes and minutes of a time. So you can watch, you know, again, hardworking players, but but guys who don't command eyeballs. And and one of the things I'm I would be excited about a shortened season in addition to all the other, you know, injury considerations and everything else is just that, okay, guess what? You're only playing every third day. I mean, all right, Russell Westbrook, forty four minutes actually is fine. Go go right at it. I mean or or you'll do these strategic kind of stops where guys come off for a minute and you know, science is suggesting some of these shorter these shorter rests, but but like that's weird. Like we I think you and I, we, we raise our eyebrows if we see that a star player is playing 38, 39, 40 minutes a night. Like, because it's, it's, it's bad in practice, yet, I mean, that's what we, I mean, guys should be on the floor. That's, they're the stars. And think, think about this. The all-star, like Kevin Love is an all-star this season. Do you know how many minutes he plays per game? 28. Right. And the guy plays slightly more than half the game. Um, and I'd love to see a shortened schedule would enable, um, it would actually really change the structure of the league, too, because I think benches would become less important. I mean, you still need to have an insurance policy for the guy that misses two weeks. Ooh, but- you're getting into some interesting territory here. So let's let's put it this way. If your union is made up of those role players and bench yep. players, are they going to be going for that? Well, like I mean, if look- your union is made up of people who need LeBron James to play 30 minutes versus 40 minutes, are they going to be OK with the idea that, you hey, um, we're going to shorten the season, and actually, instead of playing 15 minutes a game, you're now going to play five minutes a game or zero minutes a game because we shortened the season, and LeBron's just going to play more. I actually think you're absolutely right. I think it, it represents – it would pit – look, I think players are going to – I talked to a player who's been a longtime officer in the union about shortening the season. And this is a player who kind of embraces best practices when it comes to health and workout and a lot of the stuff that you've written about. Um, and – intellectually he is completely for a shorter season. But then when I said, would you do it? He's like, but I'm not doing it. I'm not shorting it one game. If you reduce our salaries and they're going to try to reduce. <laughs> our salaries. Essentially what they're going to do is if we're only playing we're game checks, right? So if we, if you go down to 70 from 82, Kevin, like you're basically talking about, you know, doing the math, like almost a 15, 20% reduction in games, they're going to reduce the salaries. He's like, but for my purposes, I report on September 25th. I leave whenever I clean out my locker. That's not going to change. He's like, you, what you guys don't always realize is the work is not the game. Like, yeah, the game is a lot of work. But if I play 70 games versus 82 games over the same amount of time, I'm not working 15 to 20% less, even though there's 15 to 20% fewer games. I'm still going to practice. In fact, there'll just be more time at the training facility. There'll be, you know, the game is like you show up at 5 and you, you're out of there at 10, right? Like that, for you guys, that, that represents, you know, mm-hmm. one second of our work. But for us, that's just five hours and I actually enjoy the games more than I enjoy practices, you know, like, so their argument was to me, that's the big hurdle with the players is intellectually they'll support fewer games. And as you said, if I'm also a ninth man, I've had a nice career playing 18 minutes a night. That's my role in the league. Now I'm a guy playing six minutes a night or even DNP on certain nights where the stars go 42, like 40, like that's, you're right. I mean that there, therein lies another impediment and another potential opponent. And Okay, I don't think teams are going to be spending their money on those ninth guys. Like, I just don't think they'll get the kind of money. Right. Because why? Why do I need to spend millions on this guy when, like, you know what? 
he's just going to be playing 12 minutes and maybe maybe like garbage time for us. So here's the other thing, Kevin, you brought up this point. Um, how do you sell the players on taking games off the schedule and maybe taking games off your your paycheck? Well, you you ask them, do you like what Jason Terry, Manny Ginobili and Vince Carter are doing at age 40? They're still getting a two million dollar paycheck right now. If you take snip some games off the schedule in the regular season now, you might be paid back in extra years on your contract. And I think I think that is the selling point for the players union is, hey, you're going to take some debt right now, but it's going to pay back big time later in your career. And you're just it's not the wear and tear isn't going to pile up and you're going to be able to have a retirement party at 42 rather than 36. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good argument for the guys who do play a lot. I mean, I don't know if the role players probably will have longer careers just because they're not playing. They're not putting as many. They're not players. good enough, right? Well, they're well, not. Also, good. Yeah, yeah. They're just that not bad good, They're not Vince Carter and Manny Ginobili. Yeah. They're they're borderline Hall of Fame. Well, for for me, they're Hall of Famers. I mean, I think the same. The argument for the players is going to be the same argument for the, which is yes, revenue might suffer up front because of local broadcast deals. Really, I mean, the truth is the tickets you can deal with. It's a dynamic market. Most a lot of these tickets sell out. Um, you know, there's some ancillary income like food and beverage and, and stuff you lose, and I'm not and I'm not going to dismiss that like it's nothing, but it's 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 small potatoes. But what you're doing is you're building the overall health of the game. I mean, the problem for a player is, okay, great, I'm not going to benefit from that in ten years when the league is much more robust because games are more important and it's appointment viewing and every game matters. And wow, their superstars are on the floor more and they're playing longer lives, and therefore just the overall value of the league is greater, and that trickles down to BRI, and that means, the, you know, we're talking about salary caps, they would be 105, which would actually be 120, um, even with the reduction in broadcast revenue, right? I mean, they're not persuaded by that argument, but I think, I mean, I think it is the same fundamental argument, which is just overall health of the league. Like, the bottom line is, if the NBA is strong as a product, the players get paid more. The owners get paid more. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just... It's just a fact. I mean, that that is the those are the economics of the league. If there's greater revenue, there are greater salaries. In fact, rarely is there an industry whose in, whose late whose labor is have their salaries more connected to the overall bottom line than the National Basketball Association. Yeah, and here here in Charlotte, Steve Clifford had to take uh, several weeks off the game because of health issues, and a lot of it was just stress and travel related. And you know, the other night, uh, Dave Yeager was in town, and I asked him. You know, he's lost a ton of weight. I said, like, hey, what is it like? You know, a head coach, in eighty-two grime season, and he just said, it's it's hard. It's if you're not if you're not healthy coming into the season and having healthy habits, you're going to be a mess. And for NBA players, it's got to be the same thing. That this time of year, like right before the All Star break. This you're seeing players are cranky out there. There are a lot of ejections in the league. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think starting the league a couple weeks early with with not much lead up time with preseason, I think guys were coming in a little bit of out of shape. And now I feel like you're seeing it where I think people are just emotionally stressed, not just physically stressed and physically taxed. I think just I know, generally the league is so kvetchy right now. Very kvetchy, Kevin. Everything is like I mean, you know, Kawhi is unhappy in San Antonio. The players and refs having having to have this summit, like every Chris Paul is fake laughing at Steve Kerr on national TV. Did you see that? I mean, it, it's like everything's amazing and nobody's happy. It uh, is. Um, yeah. Windhorse was talking about this last year. We, we, he's just like it's amazing the number of people you meet who are just miserable, you know. And it is a very kvetchy league right now at a time when, you know, it's you know the leagues. Are, I mean, I was just thinking I did this draft last night. Um, 
with Chris Swarsberg, they had uh, the editors had uh, had Chris and, and me play the roles of LeBron and, and Steph in picking teams. And, you know, I got the last pick and it ended up LaMarcus was the last player on the board. And, yeah, I'm not a huge LaMarcus guy. I'm just not a post up fan. I, I don't like what it does to an offense. But like he's had an incredible year. Like if, if, if it, it just it also it underscored just if LaMarcus Aldridge is the bottom of the barrel in those 24 players, like the league's in a really good place. Right. Like if LaMarcus <laughs> is is the throw. I mean, if you someone it was Mark Deeks or somebody who put up uh, some of the rosters of the 2002 All-Star game. Yesterday, oh, it was just like, really? Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, everybody's kind of kvetching. I think you're right. It has something to do with the grind. Um, yeah, and to hear a coach basically say, you know, I'm going to lose 37 pounds because, honestly, I, I felt like crap at the end of last season. It, you know, some of it might be vanity, like all of us, but it's just, you know, for players and coaches to kind of say, like, at this point, um, the way they talk about the season, to me, it, it it sounds like drudgery at times. And I just think that's stupid. Like, I think that's a, that's a silly way for the NBA to go about its business where it's top and most talented employees feel like it's drudgery. And it is. I mean, you look at the travel schedules, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, in, I'm in, entering early middle age. And as much as I love travel and I love travel, like I look at their itineraries and I'm like, <laughs> I'm just like wiped out looking at it. Like, like just, you know, going to see family, like cross, country for three days is you know it's kind of taxing like you're kind of screwed up the next week you're like five hour plane rides or even when you're in quote you know charter you're still five hour plane rides in a chair and i just like the the fact that the league is just can't look at this see that everybody in the league feels like a season is drudgery and doesn't take action to me is just not out of sympathy for them but i just think in terms of you know that's the thing that i think a lot of fans miss like oh you feel sorry for them they make a zillion dollars like I'm not talking about that. I don't care what they make. Like the question is, is like I care about the product because I'm a fan and I'm a reporter as a fan, essentially. And I just know that like a happier league would produce better Wednesday night basketball. Well, let me ask you this. Is this crankiness good for the product? Well, I think a certain level of drama is good for the product. Yeah. Talking about, oh, could Kawhi, you know, people getting on a trade machine and saying, could Kawhi end up in Boston for this guy or or hey, could the you know this team like I think that's good for the product. I think a good level of drama is good for the product. What I don't think is good for I don't think, but I'll say this: I don't think speculation about Kawhi is as good for the product as Kawhi having an MVP season. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe what I'm we're being Pollyannish, with- but I think I'd rather see the guy play. <laughs> well, it brings up this point. Um, I think we're just spoiled by LeBron. I think the conversation around the schedule, I think, has been buoyed by LeBron James being superhuman and just never getting injured. Knock on wood. I think a lot of this discussion about the league and health, player health, you know, you look at LeBron James and he's just bawling out every single day. And it's like until that guy is human again, I feel like this kind of conversation isn't going to change. Uh, drastically. I think just the fact that he has been a metronome for all these years and we haven't seen Kevin, we simply don't have the other control group in this experiment. The other control group is what is this league? This, this, this 2018 NBA look like without LeBron? What does that look like? We don't have the answer to that. So I feel like we can't see the effect of the schedule or player health or all, uh, all this stuff because I feel like LeBron James the fact that he has been a present dominant superstar full of drama, full of just 
awe of how good he is. I feel like we're not. I think. I, feel, I think we're spoiled. I think we're spoiled as fans because he's just been such a rock this whole time. When I was researching, kind of the first piece I did on sort of the uh, uh, an economics based argument for a shortened schedule, not a health based one, uh, though both arguments are, are really sound. You know, one of the things I learned just talking to team CEOs is how few guys per generation actually move the needle economically for the league. Now, it's not to say that a good star doesn't help create an environment where people are interested in the NBA because, oh, there's just so much talent, so to speak. But, I mean, guys that when they come in, if, if, you're, if your team is in a mid-market that's playing a Tuesday night game in February against Sacramento versus the Tuesday night game with that guy on the ticket, it's Cleveland coming to town or Golden State. And there are guys like Steph and LeBron who literally increase revenue that night by like three-quarters of a million dollars just in terms of – dynamic pricing of tickets uh you, it's it's all the movers and shakers in town who bring the expense credit card and you know and they're banging it for the client you know and yep. you know people are just really advanced sales everything else sponsorships for that game etc the rolling stones are in town versus yeah. like the local act right like yes yeah. yeah but they're really and, you know i was i was surprised to hear that you know you asked around they i got all the same answers at, at the time this was two years ago like it's lebron and steph and kobe at, at the end of his career I'm like, well, you know, what about KD? He's like, eh, yeah, OKC's in our A package. This was back when he was with the Thunder. You know, like, they, they, like we're able to sell the OKC game for a little more, but it's negligible. I'm talking about guys who come in where the environment isn't. Like, if you ever go to a game on the regular concourse on a night when LeBron is in town in, like, Atlanta <laughs> or, 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 or SAC or somewhere like that, it is an entirely different feeling. And what you're talking about is not just true just from a, a, a fan interest standpoint. I think it's also like the league now needs to manufacture the next guy. And I mean, the next guy who is, as I always say, is like kind of mom literate. Like my mom can name LeBron James. I mean, I don't you know, she could, my mom can't really tell you who Kevin Durant is. I think she's maybe heard of Russell Westbrook because, you know, his fashion stuff. But but like LeBron and Steph, she knows. And I like that's the level. And my mom's not an NBA fan. But the point is, is they're cross-cultural. That LeBron is mm-hmm. the, the, the for Giannis, and and so that's that's sort of the, the the test is can one of these guys, whether it is Giannis or Donovan Mitchell or whoever, like who is going to move the needle for the Charlotte Hornets on a Thursday or Friday night in March when they come to town in ten years? And scary the answer is nobody. The league's in trouble in some respects. I mean, there's still great appeal, but it's um. It's actually kind of interesting. I, I was very curious with the coaching change in Milwaukee. Like, I, I think Giannis is one of those guys who has the potential just because I think his game has such stage presence. What did you make of the uh, the change in Milwaukee? Well, I think everyone's saying the right thing is that is a uh, really attractive, maybe the most attractive opening uh, this summer is the Milwaukee Bucks job. And it reminds me a lot of the Anthony Davis 
New Orleans job that Alvin Gentry got, which is like people are going to be lining up around the street to get that gig simply to be able to coach Anthony Davis. Now, it hasn't really gone gone according to plan there in New Orleans. They're 25 and 21. They've had a really solid season and Bookie has been unbelievable. But I think this is going to happen again in Milwaukee is um, I feel like there is some Steve Kerr, Mark Jackson potential here where. Giannis hasn't been unleashed yet. Like, yes, he's played well in the same way that Steph Curry has was an all-star. Um, but in terms of being like an MVP favorite, I feel like we're we're one coach away from that. I feel like uh, spreading the floor, playing up tempo, watching this guy go end to end. I think he can handle it. Um, maybe not forty minutes a night, but thirty-five minutes a night. I feel like we're gonna see that. I don't know who. You're better at this than I am, but who is the number one um, on your list? You're the Milwaukee Bucks. You're the GM. You're trying to find a head coach. Who? What style or what coach are you wanting to target for that job? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I put together those lists, and really, just it's a compendium of many, many, many conversations with many people, and I kind of do it all year and keep it going, and then kind of get it out on paper in March or April. Um, you know, it, it's it, it. I think this is a really like finding the coach. First of all, we don't know how much coaches matter, which is interesting. We know they matter some because there's every team thinks, oh, am I just I I'm sitting with you know you know Mark Jackson, Monty Williams, and or whoever, and oh, is there a is there some uh, or for that matter, Doug Collins, and is there a Phil Jackson and Steve Kerr out there that we just don't know exist, and it's Schrodinger's cat and and. Like you never know if your team is New Orleans or Golden State, right? Like, will yep. the coaching change? Kind of keep things on, you know, on the same plateau, or are we a sleeping giant that is literally a historic powerhouse and we don't even know it, but we have, you know, we have the ruby slippers and we just have to put them on, right? And then that person is this next coach, and we, and the expectations for the next coach, I can tell you right now in Milwaukee are so extreme. Because I think that is the thought process. I mean, the, I think the, the the conversation that's been going on in Milwaukee for the last several months is, really several weeks, is how do we know if we're Golden State? There's only one way to find out, which is to try to find the guy we think is that is that coach. Because at this point, our personnel, there's still some things we can do, but this is who we are. Um, and we made that move for Bledsoe. I, I mean, I like, look, I, I think some interesting candidates would be James Borrego. You know, he's a Spurs assistant. He's a guy who just kind of really thinks the game. And, you know, steeped in Spurs culture, had a cup of coffee with an interim role with, with Orlando, um, young. Uh, and I, and I just think, you know, got, got really down far the process in Memphis, uh, when, when they hired Fisdale, it was just really well thought of, interviewed very well. You know, Steven Silas is another young guy. I, I kind of like the idea of the young guy. Um, I mean, Steve Kerr is very, is unique. I, I don't think, I mean, former player, former GM, was a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. There's not another Steve Kerr out there. I mean, Brent Barry is, you know, has but it still wants to probably take some time in the in the executive suite. Um, Can I throw a name at you? Yeah, throw a name. Messina. I love Edry Messina. Um, I I think he. I mean, this is a guy who is a basketball genius by every account you've ever talked to. Um, a guy who has been both continentally and now you know one of those influential minds in basketball. Um, schematically a genius and um. You know, it would be really interesting as a, as an international coach, Giannis. Um, you know, it's been next to top for the last several years. Not that, like, anyway, not but a guy who never really needed that less than anybody. I, I think the Spurs, he's intense, and I think the Spurs culture has me- mellowed him a bit because actually, Spurs coaching culture is 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 very mellow. Um, That's the guy for me. 
that's the guy that that's the that's the wild card of like i i feel like that is tailor-made for that gig is like now here he, you have he's temperamentally old school tom I mean, he's oh, not steve kerr in in temperament that's all right that's all right i'm okay with yeah. that um cool that? No, I'm, I'm cool with that i just but it is uh you know it's a consideration you know um i like that person for that job i feel like is Jason Kidd? I feel like is more old school, even though he's young. He's more old school uh, tendencies in Definitely. your book. Uh, by the way, Ettery was at the top of my list. I think last year. Right. So, like, if he's the number one guy on your list, is there a certain team? Do you think it's like a veteran team that you would want him for, or a younger team that needs to kind of grow up a little bit? I don't know. You know, it's one of the things I'm, I'm starting to realize with the coaching process is it's it's. I think it's more just. I think we always look of oh, is he a is an intense guy or a go along get along guy, and should that be a veteran guy i think it's really like you know i'm thinking about the ownership situation right like so the number one so the coach of milwaukee bucks has a couple of really unique challenges one is you know hone this wonderful talent Giannis, into just a superstar on a great team and, and make this team what it all can be but you know the governorship at that team is going to switch um and uh you know wes edens and and mark lazar are going to be a changing of the guard uh the summer after next and so it's a coach that also has to be able to create a consensus, a trust. You know, there, there's a young GM in there who, after kind of a kind of a messy public interview process, was was in the words of of a source, you know, the reluctant compromise in John Horst, uh, who's done a really good job. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's acquitting himself extremely well. But I think looked will always be looked at by everybody in the league as, oh yeah, the kid they had to settle for. Um, you know, and, but there's gonna, there's he's achieving now. And I mean, he's, he's put the place in it, we think, but they still have to win. So you have that element, right? You have a management structure that is very new and very young and is doing very well. But I think still, you know, there will always be a jaundiced eye cast at that because of the way it just kind of went down. So you have that. You have an ownership, you know, personality struggles, kind of an Atlanta type situation where it's just a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions and a lot of different camps and a lot of different interests and constituencies. Um you know, you've got a superstar who absolutely you're going to need. I mean, it is it, you cannot survive in that job unless you engender a level of trust um, with a young introverted star who has been very selective with his trust. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about Sean Sweeney, the assistant coach of the Bucks, who's who, who's his most trusted confidant, you know, his agent, um, his family. He's an agent family and this assistant coach that I like and a couple of guys on the team um, that, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very close with. And uh, by all counts, a great teammate, Giannis is. But the coach is going to have to be able to inter- penetrate that inner circle. I mean, that is surgical and it's emotional. Like the depth of emotional challenge of being a guy saying, how do you earn the trust of a young superstar who is more reticent and less dispensing of his trust is one of the great. That's as much a challenge as, oh, what do we do with the pressure defense? Right. Like, oh, we need to retool this defense is what everyone thinks <laughs> yeah. of Milwaukee Bucks. A st- coaching assignment it's about it's not about that like yeah they're going to tinker the defense they're probably going to you know alleviate a little of the pressure in, in the scheme okay fine everyone thinks that's the job that's not the job the job is Giannis the ownership a young general manager under John Horse earning his trust um and Jabari is kind of a that's that's this thing that's fraught with risk you know the previous coach didn't really care for him like He's alienated. He wants to. He's, he's working for a contract. He's coming back from injury. He needs to be integrated. He had the vision that like it was going to be a two star kind of system with Giannis mm-hmm. and Jamari. That's a freaking tinderbox in Milwaukee. 
Okay, so like everyone thinks it's about, oh, get their defense up and stop this nonsense with the traps. No, it's like number 11. Like, so the question like, for me, though, is like when you go to Giannis, like how do you find out who's the right person for the job? Does Giannis even know what he wants in a coach? We're really complicated human beings. I might say that I want um, ramen for lunch today, but I actually might just really need a salad, you know? So uh, maybe Giannis thinks he wants this, but really he needs this. And so that's the question is if Giannis Antetokounmpo is the key to this franchise, how much should he be involved in that head coach? I mean, in the search, I mean, I, I think, and I mean this seriously, I mean, I don't mean to be naive. I, I think Giannis wants to win. And if you tell him this is Steve Kerr and that person, you know, and I say Steve Kerr, not in temperament or anything else, just is the guy who can, you know, elevate this franchise to its rightful place at the top of the Eastern Conference. Um, I think if a coach can come in and win ball games and institute a, a, a structure, I mean, Giannis is really structured. Like, he's kind of Kobe-ish in his meticulousness. Like, I was kind of shocked to see it. This was a week and a half before training camp started. Just how much time. And, like, it, he is – he's he's very singular. He, he's not LeBron in the uh, in the crafting of the, a larger persona and a larger purpose over the game that, that's both social and, and an expression of self-determination and all that other stuff. Uh-uh. He's in the gym. And I, I think he wants – if a coach can say, follow me, we're going to win some ball games. we're going to be a 750 team. I, I think that's that's what he wants, but I don't think it's like oh I want a guy who's going to be this way or that way. Like I don't think he's young. I don't I don't think he really really knows. Um, I think he wants to win, and he wants someone who's going to hold everybody accountable. I want you to win, Kevin. I want you to win, Tom. Thank you, man. You win. You have launched a cultural craze. Like, I don't know anyone uh, who launched a cultural craze. You have launched a cultural craze um, and have done it for the greatest reason in the world. And I, I want you to tell us about this. Um, so real quick, my mom was diagnosed with uh, ALS uh, in October. It's Lou Gehrig's disease. It is a terminal disease. There is no therapy. There is no treatment. There is no cure. Uh, we want to end that. My family, we want to end that for my mother and we want to end that for everyone else who is now dealing with ALS or might one day deal with ALS because we need it. Uh, the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge was great. It raised $200 million. We want to do the Ice Bucket Challenge again. And this it's called the ALS Pepper Challenge. Eric Spolster has done it. David Fisdale has done it. A bunch of NBA personalities have done it. Number one on that mountain is Andrew Hahn. Um, and we have raised $50,000, which was our goal. We've raised 49000 as of this taping. We want to jack that up much higher than that because um, not just for my mom, but for everyone else, it's not an incurable disease. It is just an underfunded one. So all you listeners out there, um, I know some of you have a family member, a friend, uh, someone you look up to in the public space that has been affected by ALS. We need your help. So go to hashtag ALS pepper challenge post a video of yourself eating a jalapeno habanero or a serrano habanero is the hottest right Andrew yes I know it is um, and nominate three others we're trying to raise as much funds as we can the place to donate is ALS.net 
uh, and you can donate there or go to our classy page, which is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash A-L-S pepper. We're going to get a much uh, cleaner URL than that. But um, please participate. Help us out. And uh, if you don't want to eat a pepper, that's okay, too. Like someone else on this call, um, you can donate and raise awareness other ways. So thank you so much uh, for participating giving me this soapbox for the past minute. Where can people find your work? Bleacher Reports Magazine, BR Mag. Um, uh, it's on my Twitter account. You can find it there. Uh, you can also listen to the Basketball Friends on Leverage the Chat and also the Pack Your Knives podcast with a one Kevin Artovitz. It's like my favorite thing going in my life right now. So. This is the coolest thing in my life is Pack Your Knives, our Top Chef podcast. I know you need to run, so we won't get into it. But yeah, if, if you're a Top Chef fan, Add us, think, consider adding us as a compliment to your to your watching regimen. Uh, and now. even if you're not a Top Chef fan, start watching this week. It's Restaurant Wars. It is the Super Bowl of the Top Chef show. It's going to be fun. And we're actually going to be breaking it down with some really fun special guests. The, the whole pitch of the show is if you like us talking about the NBA, you might like us talking about food. And that's what the Top Chef pod, Pack Your Knives, is all about. No, I just don't want you to win on top, on Pack Your Knives Fantasy. I, I want to win Pack Your Knives Fantasy. But I want you to win in every other capacity of life. Well, thank you, man. Um, and you're a big part of that from the days of the heat index uh, and the days of <laughs> heat reaction grades and eating uh, eating Chef Tally. Uh, thank you for, for helping me win, man. Glad to yes. be on this podcast. Thank you. Han, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to uh, to participate. I miss you guys. This is the Hoop Collective.